Welcome, folks, to another podcast here. I'm Mark Steiner, and in our run-up to the gubernatorial primary, we are having a series of conversations, as we will with all candidates, uh, coming up. And we are once again in the studio with Ben Jealous, who is in the Democratic primary running for governor. He made an announcement that Susan Turnbull, the former vice chair of the Democratic National Committee, will be his running mate, and she is in the studio as well. And Ben and Susan, welcome. Good to have you both with us here. Great to be with you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's I guess the most natural question is, why did you pick Susan and why did you accept? <laughs> you know, I went to sit with Susie because she's the former chair of our state party. And she was the chair when we won big. 2010, we turned out 125,000 more Democrats than we showed up in 2014. I wanted her advice, and I wanted her advice on a running mate. And a few days later, I been traveling around the state. I said, called up my campaign manager and said, hey, I've been meaning to ask you this question for a few days now. Like, why not Susie? She was great. And he said, well, funny thing, I just got off the phone with her, and she was asking me the same question. <laughs> <laughs> and you? Susan, I mean, why did you decide why to run for lieutenant governor after all these years in politics and doing what you've done? Why now? Right. Why him? Actually, <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting, um, Mark. One of the things that I have done is it's been 40 years. I've been involved in, in, in politics 40 years and in Maryland politics for about 35. And right now, it's if not now when, and if not with him, then with who? I mean, and, and basically for me, it's, yeah, I got to do this. I got to do this because I've worked on building coalitions. Um, I, what you don't know about me probably is that for the last um, seven or eight years, I chaired two major national Jewish organizations, um, Jewish Women International, which focuses a lot on um, women's empowerment as well as um, working against um, sexual and domestic abuse. Uh, so we've been pretty busy these days. Yeah. Um, and um, the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, which is an umbrella organization of all the Jewish community relations councils across the country. And all we've done is build consensus and build coalitions. And if right now, who is a, any, if there's anyone in this country who's a coalition builder, anyone in our state that's a coalition builder, it's the, it's the man who um, was named Baltimore, per, uh, Maryland Person of the Year, for his work on marriage equality, on um, the death penalty, and on the DREAM Act. And so meeting Ben, my eyes were open to say, okay, with what's going on, I got to do this. So a question, just a political question. We have this one through the primary. There's a lot of Democrats running for the, the governor's mansion. Yes. Um, a lot of them, like Rich Madaleno or Ruchman Baker, some others you can mention, mm. um, are running as pro- are progressives, progressive in their politics. I mean, so what sets this apart? What sets this team apart from those people whose politics are really not that different? It's our proven track record to both get things done, big things done. I mean, you know, those three victories, death penalty, marriage equality, DREAM Act, co-chaired the DREAM Act, put organizers on the ground to help pass marriage equality, really led the final push here to get the death penalty abolished, happened in the context of helping pass voting rights le- legislation, running the largest, and this is the, you know, the other piece of it, running the largest door-to-door voter registration operation in the country and the largest un- nonpartisan, unlikely turnout uh, voter turnout operation. And so Susie and I share in common, what's unique is our ability to build big, robust coalitions to get things done 
and to turn out massive, massive numbers of voters. If you look at Baltimore County, if you look at Prince George's County in 2014, voter turnout was way down. If you look at 2012 and the black vote in this country, there was a lot of concern that we would not turn out, that black men would not turn out. NAACP made a huge difference. Van Jones called us on CNN the unsung heroes of Obama's re-election because we turned out almost 1.4 million unlikely voters. Susie was doing the same thing here in our state two years earlier. 2010, once again, Democratic turnout was not guaranteed. It was down in most of the country. Maryland was one of the few states where it was up. In what year? Are we talking about here? 2012? 2010 with Susie, 2012 with me. So, but but in, in the last election, a less gubernatorial election, Democratic vote was down. Yeah. It was down in Prince George's County. It was down in Montgomery County. It was down in Howard what, County. And that's Charles County, and Baltimore. So if you look at our opponents, let's be real clear. She was running things in 2010. Turnout was up. I was running things in 2012. Turnout was up. They were running things in 2014. Turnout was down. And to go even one step further on that, I um, got my stripes in, in politics, um, both here in Maryland and, and then who sent me to the Democratic National Committee as the Democratic National Committee woman from Maryland for a number of years. So I created the Women's Caucus. I mean, I didn't create it. I, I built the Women's Caucus from 12 women sitting in a room periodically at DNC meetings to hundreds and thousands at the Democratic Convention. And then I was chosen to be deputy chair of the party and then was elected to be vice chair of the Democratic National Committee when Howard Dean won. And what we did is took the kinds of experience that I had with the Women's Caucus and took the experience that he had and built on a presidential campaign and looked at it and said, we need a 50-state strategy. We need to make sure that we move, uh, that, that a, a voter in Kansas is as important as a voter in Manhattan. And what we did do here then, we transferred that to Maryland when I came here. Um, in 2008, 2006, when I was vice chair in 2008, we won big. We took over the House and the Senate, and we were instrumental in, in making Barack Obama president of the United States. We brought that here in 2010. So besides getting out, I mean, I'm gonna, you can come, we can come back to questions of how you get a vote out in an election, because I think that's critical to anybody's victory mm -hmm. sure. in any election, and how, you know, how you run manage that part of your campaign. Sure. But part of the, the issue, seems to me, is that people, a number of people who wouldn't ordinarily think about or wouldn't ordinarily vote Democrat are disillusioned with the Democratic Party. They're disillusioned with what they sure. see around them, yeah. which is why I think uh, Lieutenant Governor Brown lost, was part of that, besides the way they ran the campaign, was the disillusionment. I, that's why Hillary Clinton lost many ways when you're seeing that, that, um, uh, that in that election, uh, he won with fewer votes than Romney got. Right, and, and 10 million people yeah. who had voted for Obama in 2008 did not bother to come to the polls to yeah. vote in that election. Uh, who would, so, 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 wh so what are you saying or doing that makes any, that yeah, makes Mark, changes that paradigm? It's real simple, you know, and it gets back to what my grandma taught me and what your mom taught you and what Barbara McCulsey taught our state, right? And Shirley Chisholm, our country, which is, you know, we are Democrats. We've had to advance economic opportunity for everyone and also because we fight to end poverty, and we're serious about it. Our party strayed from that. For like the last quarter century, we've been too close to Wall Street, and we've been too mum when it comes to ending poverty, too tolerant of extreme poverty surging here in our city, 
uh, and in our country, right? Baltimore, 1970, had about 30-odd high-poverty neighborhoods. Today, we have 55. Democrats leading in that time. Democrats not delivering for our base. And so what's different about this campaign is that we're presenting whole problems, sorry, whole solutions to whole problems. My grandma was a social worker in the city for decades, which would always say to me, baby, you can't solve half a problem. You solve half a problem, you still got a problem, and it might get bigger. You got to solve the whole problem. And so, you know, we'll be rolling out our healthcare for all strategy tomorrow with Bernie Sanders at Notre Dame. And Notre Dame of Maryland here. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Notre, Notre, Dame. Notre, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. <laughs> Notre Dame. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, and we are specifically not doing what other folks are doing in this race. They want to call for a public option. Do the research. You look at the Rand Corporation, right? Centrist thought, you know, think tank. Uh, first, I think, seated by the U.S. Air Force. What do they tell you about the public option? It won't do much because it won't cost much because it won't do much. It'll preserve the status quo. There's nothing more expensive to Marylanders. I'm talking our employers, small businesses, individuals than maintaining the status quo. It, the cost of health care has surged and surged. It's the leading cause of bankruptcy in our state. It's top five cause of untimely deaths. Premiums are pushing not just families into poverty, they're pushing senior citizens back into the workforce to pay for their pharmaceutical bills. We're the only campaign uh, in this state stepping up and saying, here's a plan to get it done, whether or not Congress decides to fix this problem. So let's take this issue for a moment you just raised, health care. So the push in the coming legislative session will be... Uh, a push by Vinnie DeMarco and other groups, uh, other people who are at, uh, public health advocates in the state, uh, on the Democratic side, to ensure that um, what is being gutted in Washington will be rebuilt in Maryland, what we call Obamacare, in terms of mm-hmm. uh, the uninsured having to be part of an insurance, part of the pool itself. Um, so, and and so the question is: A, that's a, that's where the Democrats seem to be going. How does a public how, how does a single payer system work in a state alone? How does that even begin? How do you think about sure. that? And what how pays for that? I mean, how do you do that? What so, is, well, how does that politically happen? So the beauty of it, happen? I mean, again, you know, you can you can go back and look at, for instance, the study that the Rand Corporation did on the state of Oregon. Um, this saves us money. Period. Uh, we are better positioned than any state ever has been to create a state-based Medicare for all. How does, we, that, that, how does that work in practical terms? Sure. I mean, let, let me just kind of walk you, walk you through why why we'll be able to succeed where 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 others haven't. Take the state of Vermont for for instance. Basic problem there was economies of scale. We're ten times larger. We also have an all payer system, which is a step in that d- direction. That's already proven that it's saving us. You know, uh, ever since Martin O'Malley uh, updated and put in place what we have now, the end of his term, saved about four hundred twenty nine million dollars. Um, then you have the fact that uh, um, 
we have the hospital waiver, one of the two or three big waivers that you have to have. And finally, we're one of the wealthier states, one of the more robust economies in the country. For all those reasons, we can get it done here. When we do that, we will save money because we will reduce overhead. You look at American private insurers, their overhead is, is, is typically twice as high as, as the system in Canada and the systems in Western Europe, and five times as high as Medicare. So there's a lot of unnecessary overhead we can cut out, one. Two, while the federal dov- government cannot get us a better deal from Big Pharma because they have prohibited themselves from doing so, they have not prohibited states and localities from doing just that. So we can get a better deal from Big Pharma. We can also expand the existing all-payer system in ways that are already being talked about in the state legislature but haven't happened yet. And finally, we're able to get larger economies of scale. Again, this, you know, this gets back to sort of the engine for getting a, big, a, a better deal from Big Pharma, but it, it also means you can turn to a state like Vermont and say, hey, you were too small to do this by yourself, but we've done it. You can join our program. And so you can actually continue to expand your economies of scale ultimately by making it possible for other states, typically smaller states, to join our program. So I, I, I mean, so I know there'll be a lot of pushback during the campaign about how we afford to do these things, and and the, this this. The, but this is one place where we save money, and again, our all payer system has already shown us where we can save money. We can't equate change with more expensive. Some things will cost money. Some things will save money. This is something like ending mass incarceration that saves money. So let's take a couple of other issues here that we're facing in the state and how you build a consensus in the state around these issues, and how you all would build a consensus. We're watching Baltimore flail around the violence that has erupted in this city. And it's significant, really significant. Um, And you also have a city where the plurality, if not the majority of people in the city, live in communities or surrounded by communities that are desolate, isolated, and I would maintain, are in the worst condition that I remember in my life, and I'm 71 years old and grew up in inner cities. And And you're my 76-year-old mom who desegregated Western High School and say say the exact same thing. I've never seen it this bad. People are feeling desperate and isolated. She cries. When she drives down Pulaski Street where she grew up, my mom cries every time. It's horrible what what, what we've done, what what we've allowed to happen. So, A, so what's the response from the state government to that, A, and B, how do you make people in other parts of the state even interested or care about that and being willing to do something about what is being faced in the city of Baltimore, which is not the largest voting center in the state, just to put a political question in there. So, I mean, where do you begin? Well, I think it goes, Mark, beyond politics, and it goes into into people. And I think people in our state showed a lot many years ago when, when they were looking at balancing school funding, that particularly in Montgomery County, they went out and they said, okay, we need to do this. We have an emergency now in Baltimore. We have an emergency with the opioid crisis. We have an emergency in our state with guns. We have an emergency in just this pure poverty. And I think that what Ben and I want to do is say, okay, we got to do big things again. And you start with ending mass incarceration and spending money places where spending money that isn't going to build hope and build opportunity. Um, there, this, sum, this last summer, the, the movie that was out about the Baltimore Women's Academy, um, 
it touched, right. yeah, it was an amazing story <clears throat> because it talked about 34 young women who were uh, in a charter school that then had opportunity and then were going on to college. Um, they were going to all different kinds of colleges, but they were going to get higher education. And so it's education is the it is the basis of everything. I know for me, um, I didn't grow up in Baltimore, but I grew up in a two-family house, and my dad drove a cab, and I went to college on a, a store, uh, just a, um, a mass collection of financial aid, a patchwork quilt, basically. Right now, someone graduating from school, if they graduate in Baltimore, is faced with college costs that could be beyond the pale, and the idea of having loans just doesn't make any sense. I graduated college with loans, and I, and, and, um, I know now looking at it for my own grandchildren, I'm looking at what college costs are going to be 18 years from now. We have to build a system so that we take the money back. Um, if, it, if it means um, a rainy day funds are for rainy days, and we have a rainy day here. We need to invest potentially. Uh, ben has come out with a tremendous opioid addiction program that's not just for Baltimore, but is for across the state, where you bring people, you, you see, deal with the problems as we have them, not in a, in a way that, that doesn't get results. Yeah, Mark, one of the things that really defines the partnership between Susie and I in unseating Larry Hogan, winning this primary, winning this general, is that we understand that in, in, in order to have friends, you got to be a friend. We want friends for Baltimore, you know, and I, I'm a Baltimore businessman, uh, baptized here, just like my mama was baptized here, uh, you know, fourth generation member of St. James Episcopal Church in Harlem Park. Um, we want friends for Baltimore. Then, then we've got to be prepared to be a friend to Western Maryland, to be a friend to the Eastern Shore. And, you know, I started off uh, my policy rollouts with the uh, issue of fentanyl and opioids and heroin. Because unfortunately, that unites our state in pain right now. You know, I, um, you know, my family's deep in West Baltimore, and I know just how long and how deep the heroin addiction crisis is. Right? I have friends who grew up with parents addicted to heroin in the city. Um, I've sat with, you know, thirteen-year-old girls coming back from tennis practice on the Eastern Shore, uh, you know, in a backyard that looked like the set of the Gilmore Girls is they talk to me about burying three of their classmates in the past year. Three classmates, ninth grade. You know, I've been out to Cumberland and uh, you know, listened to folks talk about how the streets at night get taken over by people who are addicted to pills and to, and to heroin. And so you know, that's the, unfortunately, the legacy of, of slavery and segregation in our state predisposes us, I think many of us, the older we are, to assume that people start off divided. But um, in moments like this, when the working people across the state, when families across the state are stressed out, whether it's by mass incarceration that doesn't just incarcerate uh, in our country and in our state uh, black and brown people more than anywhere else you know, on the planet outside of our country, um, but, but also incarcerates white people at a higher rate. And they, what they have in common is they all come from poor families. Right? I can take you to high incarceration blocks uh, in Baltimore and in Cumberland. 
You know, in Baltimore you know, and in Salisbury, and we can draw counties where just like the U.S. military recruits because people there tend to be poor, prisons recruit too. And so um, fundamentally what you'll see from this uh, campaign is that we will roll out policies that, yes, are better for Baltimore, but they're also better for the Eastern Shore. They're also better for Western Maryland. Again, what we have, when, when we are at our best, when we are in that groove cut by FDR and JFK and RFK, Shirley Chisholm and MLK, Barbara Mikulski, yeah, we're on fire uh, to advance civil rights and we're on fire to end poverty. So one of the, the current commission will come in with this report <clears throat> at the end of this year. Um, and education and funding of education is a huge battle in the state. Yeah. You have Montgomery County squaring off against Baltimore. Who's going to get the money for education? In each locality, is very different. I mean, Montgomery County has one set of issues with immigration and other issues, and also issues. Some issues of poverty that are kind of hidden. The Baltimore's education system is in a deep crisis. Um, every every part of Maryland is dying for money. Again, it's a question of money. How you divide it up? Where's the money? Maryland's come from? dying for better management. I mean, what I want to be real clear here on this issue of education because it frustrates me. You know, it frustrates me. I, you know, my mom was part of the Brown era litigation. She was twelve when she sued Western High School for girls. Right? I started out my career in the mailroom of Thurgood Marshall's old law firm, firm, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And what we've always known in that context, those of us who come out of the NAACP. Is, that Thurgood under, is what Thurgood understood, which is that until we fully fund our schools, nothing really gets better, right? Yes, we have to tear down the walls of segregation, and we also have to fund the schools, because that was the other kind of clear legacy, frankly, of slavery and indentured servitude, right? Of a real throwing away of people here based on class when we really get down to it. And, and people feel that, by the way, across the state, right? Um, you can go into schools in West Baltimore where it's pretty much all black children being underserved. And you can go into schools in Western Maryland where it's pretty much all white children being underserved. And what they have in common is they come from low-income families. And, uh, and so we've got to stop this, this scarcity charade when it comes to funding education. The reality is I, I've been a CEO since I was 26 years old or a partner in a small business as I am now. I've never found a budget I could optimize by 5%. This $2 billion shortfall in funding, you know, state funding of public education, it's less than 5% of our state budget. We can fix that. It means, though, that we're, we're, we're going to have to budget the way that, that your nonprofit budgets, the way that my small business budgets, the way that our families budget, which means that we, we fund first things first. We have tough conversations about priorities with love. And, yeah, and then we make some tough decisions. And so we'll do participatory budgeting. We'll poll the people of the state. Say, what's most important to you? I guarantee you what they'll say, 90% chance is education because we usually do. And infrastructure. Yes, and then we'll fund education. And we'll fund infrastructure. And we will manage our budget the way, uh, quite frankly, that, that, that everybody except people who have been trained to be executives as politicians manage their budgets. When you're trained to be an executive at a nonprofit or a for-profit or of a family, again, you get real comfortable making tough decisions. When you're trained to be an executive as a politician, you try to avoid them at all costs because you don't want it to cost you your next election. I'm willing to risk uh, n my next election, my re-election, uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves here on fully funding education and making the tough decisions that we're going to need to make to do that. And, Mark, it's all about people, too. It's, it's about – so – when you're looking at a budget, and, and I think what, what Ben and I have always done, is it's, okay, how does this affect people? That's the bottom line. And what are the stories? 
and what I think um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about running with Ben is because we're going to be asking those questions. Like, what do you want? What do you need? Tell us your story. I was really fortunate in our state um, when, because I asked a question, we changed things. And I don't know if you remember the story, but um, in 1992, my mom had been living in a nursing home for um, eight years, seven years. And during that time, no one ever checked to see her breasts. And she never had, had a mammogram at all. And um, one day, um, breast cancer was discovered, and two weeks later, she was dead. And I, after that happened, I came, I, I said, this, this can't be. And because I, care ab- I cared about getting involved and making a difference, um, I went to see then-Governor William Donald Schaefer. And, bet- and what we did was create a task force that made recommendations, and from that day forth, in 1994, on Mother's Day, women in nursing homes in the state of Maryland were screened for breast cancer and men were screened for prostate cancer because no family should ever suffer like that. Well, I have to tell you, it's the stories. It's the stories that we're going to hear. And then the money comes from the stories. The programs come from the stories. And in that case, um, we, we, di- we didn't need to get legislation to get it done. We got it done because we, we brought people together in the nursing home industry, in the nursing industry, in the medical profession to say, you got to do this. So a political question here. So yeah. we're, 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 uh, as we wind out, I mean, you have a rally coming up with Bernie Sanders at Wednesday, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Here in Baltimore. Yep. Mm-hmm. Healthcare for all. Yes. So two questions. Why that rally? Yeah. Why Bernie here now? And B, the reality that Bernie lost in Maryland. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, the... Um, <laughs> Time, time changes things. Uh, I co-chaired Bernie's campaign uh, in Maryland. And uh, then he was not the most popular political figure in our state. Today he is. Uh, and so um, you know, we know at that rally, there'll be a lot of folks like me who voted for Bernie. There'll be a lot of folks like Susie who didn't, who are ready to say it's time for health care for all. Uh, we've got to do this so that my family's not bankrupted again. You know, we've got to do this so my small business can thrive. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're bringing Bernie in on this issue because there's nobody more credible in our country or our state. So let me ask this, this issue. Let's end with this political question here. Since you just said, you, you yeah. heard something on what you just said, Ben. And Susan, so, so you worked for Hillary um, in the last campaign, right? I, actually, I worked for the, for the ticket once, it, once the ticket came to be. So what do you think about how do you unite that in a state like this? This is the Democratic Party itself is really divided. <laughs> yeah, that's on this what, issue, and right? that's what right? we do. I mean, that's who we are. Right? I mean, basically, this isn't going to be about the 2016 election. This is going to be, be about the 2018 election, the 2020. If there was anything that tells you that is starting um, with the day of the Million Mom March, there were people who voted for everybody. At that rally. Jill Stein. Jill Stein, you know. Hillary uh, Clinton, Bernie Sanders, everybody. Everybody. And they came out in numbers that were record-breaking for good reason, for good reason. And then the the inspiration of that rally made more people take more actions than anything I've ever seen in politics. I went to a 915 um, rally against the tax bill a few weeks ago on a Saturday morning. 500 people, indivisible, um, a, a group, 
sprung up in uh, Montgomery County. 200 people were there on Saturday. You have more people who are doing things. They're taking action. They're making calls. That's what stopped the um, Congress from really acting earlier this year on, on health care. That's what hopefully and possibly could even stop um, this tax bill from going through. People don't want to say no. They, they, they want to say yes. They also are saying to us, how do we get involved? Yeah, and let me just be you know, real clear. You know, Mark, the, uh, we've been forced to make false choices for too long. Say, is that policy uh, principled and progressive or is it pragmatic? It's possible for them to be both. Is that something that's going to make our economy more just or is it going to make our economy more robust? It's possible to do both. And so when we come out and we say, yeah, we're going to invest more in education, part that's because that's the right thing to do by our children, and part's because it's the right thing to do by our small business people and employers who are saying, guys, time out. We need 3,000 new construction managers every year in Maryland, and 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 the public university program that produces the most produces about two dozen. We got to do better. We have shortages of teachers in Baltimore City every year. We got to do better. We have shortages of nurses, welders, truckers. We've got to do better. And so we will invest in building an education system that does a better job of educating our kids and also guiding them towards careers. So when you come out of high school, you have a choice between college and a career. Um, you know, the uh, you know fundamentally, uh, this this healthcare. Um, uh, policy we put forward will save us money. Ending mass incarceration will save us money. And that will give us the opportunity to invest those dollars in better things, whether it's putting back in taxpayers' pockets or whether it's making sure that our public universities become more and more affordable and not more and more expensive. Ben Jealous and Susan Trimble are running in the Democratic primary for governor and lieutenant governor, respectively, on their ticket. Joined us here in the studio here at the Center for Emerging Media. Uh, I'm Mark Zahn. I want to thank them both for joining us today. Good to be with you. See you down the campaign trail. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.